1: This is Dana Humphrey. Today, I'm here with surprise Marjorie Malpiti, who is not wearing her podcaster hat today. She is here to talk about learning well and some of the great features we have in this month's magazine. So welcome, Marge, to being a quadcast guest today.
0: Thank you, Dana. I think it's great that we have an opportunity to do this, and I appreciate you um, inviting me on the show to talk more about learning well. Uh, As you know, we're so excited about the debut of this magazine, and I'm happy to talk a little bit about the backstory. Um, of how we put all these articles together.
1: So I want to spend some time talking about the reporting that you did on an article that we just released on the Georgetown University Englehart Project for Connecting Life and Learning. The piece is called Welcoming Wellbeing into the Classroom for listeners who want to go check that out. Why don't we start with what that program is? Sure. First of all, I had such a great
0: experience writing this piece. It's a jewel of a program. If you're into sort of the work that we are in terms of the intersection of well-being in higher ed and learning and teaching, this is really a prime example of some real serious innovation in this area. So the Englehart program has been in existence since 2005, I believe, at Georgetown. It's a partnership between faculty, in any discipline, and a student affairs professional or anyone in a student-facing role. And the course is designed to allow students to understand their selves within the content. So, for instance, if you're in a psychology course, it might be dress and its impact on learning. If you're in a science class, if it's something having to do with, say, global warming or climate change, it could be anxiety related to how to address those issues. And the faculty are extremely creative. What they pick as a sweet spot in the content of their courses that relate to anything in the area of well-being, which is, of course, all the different sort of six, six or seven, whatever scale you use, areas of well-being. So after they pick the subject, they then invite a person, again, in a student-facing role, to come in and lead one of the classes and integrate, again, the content with their subject matter. So for instance, well, I'll give you the Joan Riley example, which is how I started the article. So she's in health promotion and disease prevention. And she was working, This again, this is really towards the start of the program. She was working in a separate initiative with an interdepartmental group that was focused on addressing substance use, particularly binge drinking on campus, which was a big issue back in the early 2000s. It still is, but it's changed in some ways. But Joan was working with a group, and I write, she has this epiphany saying, what can I do as a professor to really help address this problem? So what she did is she went back and she literally says, she she asked her students to throw away the syllabi. And she said, we're going to look at this problem from a, both an academic and a personal perspective. So we're going to talk about binge drinking and alcohol from how this affects people in their lifetime. So she talks about the metabolic processing of Alcohol in your body through to patterns of alcohol in families to alcohol and seniors and, of course, binge drinking. So she covered the same content, but she did so from a perspective of really bringing the personal and the interior lives of students into the classroom.
1: I love this idea, but I'm wondering what is the hope for the outcome of something like this where you are integrating well-being into the curriculum? What are they hoping to get out of this?
0: So great question. And I asked that of all the people I interviewed, and I think they're very clear with their answers, but they come from a little bit of a different perspective. From the well-being student health perspective, I think those professionals are really acknowledging of the effectiveness of discussing these issues inside the classroom, right? These are people that are committed to awareness, prevention, mental health, being, et cetera, again, substance use prevention, sexual assault awareness, all of these important sort of student-centered issues. So for them, they feel as though the students really Absorb the information in much more effective ways when it's brought into the classroom. And there's some really good data on that too. So from the professor's perspective, from the teacher's perspective, I think that's the real kind of interesting and evolving dynamic here. I think there's a lot of evidence out there and I cited in the article on the effect of high-impact practices that really bring students' inner selves into the conversation, how that actually helps them learn. One person was telling me that as they recruit faculty to do this, it comes from a lot of different places for people. One biology professor was saying, I don't really, I'm not that interested in understanding my students in lives, but I think this makes them better scientists. Whereas other professors really lean into this and they are bought in that if you make the content of what you're teaching relatable to someone through sort of an internal connection that is where the magic happens. And I I think that answers your question. There's there's a lot of different perspectives on it, but those are the two big things, that it it allows this information to be absorbed in a way that we think is much more effective and internalized, and then it allows faculty to teach in a way where they're really engaging students. And of course, the students report that they felt really much more part of the process. It's a a precedent-setting initiative, I think, because basically it welcomes the personal into the classroom in a way that you don't see often in higher ed. I think a lot of schools talk about teaching to the whole person, but to really do it in this way crosses a lot of expectations about how things should be. For instance, teachers have opened up their classrooms and said, hey, if I expect my students to come up, come into class and show up with their whole selves, I have to do that too. So they talk about their own mental health. And so it really exposes students to a different kind of relationship with their professors. And I think a lot of people call this relationship-based learning. This is a technique that is not new, but I was surprised at how little it's really being executed on campuses. So I think the Georgetown Englehart example is a really rich one. And uh, I I would say, unfortunately, it's unique at this point.
1: That brings me to my next question, because this seems like it is a win-win-win. The academic affairs side are happy, student affairs are happy, and this is benefiting students. What would it take to bring this project to other schools?
0: That's a great question. And it's a great one for learning well, because one of the things that we're trying to do with these examples is have people who are at other campuses look at this and say, huh, I think this could work or I'm really interested in the data around how this works and, and could it work here. So there's a couple of answers to that. One is it can be scaled and there are certain elements of it that the folks that are running it, Jocelyn Lewis, who's terrific, will tell other schools and they often get a lot of questions about how th- this could be replicated Things like making sure you have an advisory council that is multidisciplinary, right? The the one big thing, and I hope I brought this out in my article, is this silo crossing between what were typically closed off student affairs offices, academic offices, academic affairs and faculty, et cetera. The the fusing of these realms is really important. So that's one thing. Another is the availability of, at the time, of student affairs professionals who can donate their time and expertise inside the classroom. That's not always the case, as we well know. Georgetown is a well-resourced school. That's certainly not always the case at other schools where they don't have an abundance of student-facing resources. So that's another one. But interestingly, some of this didn't make it into the article, but there are some philosophical barriers to this that I think other schools need to think about. And I think it's one of the reasons we haven't seen Engelhart just catch on like wildfire when when you think, to your point, about, about the benefits of this. And part of it goes back to the, the comfort level of faculty. One of the things that struck me about how they fashioned this from the the very beginning was that they really made it faculty-friendly to the point where they made the bar for enlistment fairly low in terms of their time and commitment. And they really focused on having the faculty own this, both in terms of their own time and their sense of who's driving it. So I think that that would resonate on many campuses, but the comfort level in doing that and saying, I'm going to talk to these really interesting people because Jocelyn does a lot of training. I'm going to get to know a whole lot of specialists in different areas. I'm going to stop what I'm doing for at least one or two of my classes because I didn't mention this before, but the students do reflective writing on this as well. I'm going to bring that into my class and it's going to take time, energy, and a comfort level that not everybody has. So I think faculty complain that they don't have time I think other faculty feel like it may be too touchy-feely. And it's funny because Jen Willard, who's a faculty member who's been doing this since 2005 and is, is, is a big advocate for the program, even she will say there are some faculty for whom this is just not a good option. Now, I think that we've really evolved in that sense in that the mental health crisis in this country as it relates to college students, obviously made worse by the pandemic, has really changed that dynamic to a certain degree because there's been so much focus on what do you do if someone presents with an issue. So I think people feel a little more comfortable. One of the designs at the Englehart program is, of course, while you are bringing forth this personal side of students and making that part of your engagement strategy, there's also, you are literally telling, giving them resources and letting them know who to go to. So I think Engler does a really good job of trying to sway a lot of what the concerns are on the professor's end, but I still think that's a barrier.
1: It's such an interesting article, and it is such an important program, so I do hope that it gets widely adopted, the idea at least, at other schools around the country, and I hope some of those barriers are overcome. But I really encourage everybody listening to go and read the article because it's really well done, so kudos on that, march. I want to switch gears a little bit and talk about what else is in the magazine in this month's issue. So what else do we have, March. You have one other article, and there's another article by our star reporter, Molly Ames, as well. Yes. I'll jump into the second story
0: I wrote, which was about a really interesting teaching tool called Ask Class. And it is a software program, very simple. It's a combination of technology, obviously, and behavioral health or behavioral science, a little bit of psychology. And as the founder says, a little bit of nudging. So basically the idea behind this is it's a teaching tool that gets students speaking up in class. So just to give a little bit about the background, the reason I think this is so important and it's taking off is that we've all heard about the disengagement that's going on post-pandemic. Students feeling that their social skills are rusty, obviously the proliferation of social media and the addiction, and I can say that because I've got three young adults who are addicted to their phones, I think has led to a weird phenomenon, which I'm always surprised about because I'm not in a lot of classes. This idea that you walk into your class and there's no sound. Everybody's on their phone and nobody's speaking to one another. And that's one problem. The other problem for students is they're not participating, right? Either they're really disengaged and not they're not coming to class, or they're coming to class and they're not participating in the conversation. And so Damon Moon is a professor at San Jose State University, and he came to, he's an adjunct professor, and he came to this role, he teaches in the business school, as a management consultant, and he has a technology partner. And he sought out, after he observed these behaviors, what might help this in terms of technology in the classroom, knowing a few things. Obviously, students love certain technology. They love to play games, and they're motivated by certain things. He says he went about doing this to really get people talking again. He's got a great quote saying that college students, traditional college age, certainly can go hours without talking. And when they do, the first thing they say is usually, do you have a charger? He jokes, but he's pretty serious about needing to really address what he thinks is a big problem, which is the isolation and the lack of sort of communication that leads to poor mental health. There's a lot to unpack in this small tool, but I had a a really great time writing that article, mostly because I spoke to five students. I was interested in what the users of this product would think, and one was a professor called Dr. Bob Dubois, who was amazing, Dr. Bob was saying it is through this Ask class, it has really prompted his students to speak to one another, but also to participate in class. It's a kind of a combination of a game and then questions that prompt students to talk. So when you first come to class and you're in an Ask class classroom, like a Damon Moon teaches you hear classic piano music and there's a question on board, a projector. And the question is everything from, oh, so someone gave you $100 to donate. Who would you donate to and why? To who do you most want to have dinner with if you could do that with a celebrity? To what's your favorite movie? So these are, and I guess, I think these are the questions that you can Google that are most thought-provoking or conversation-sparking. And the kids apparently love it. And so they It's not like, how was your day? Good, back to the phone. This is stuff they really got to talk to each other about. So they have their private conversations. They can talk to whoever, someone next to them. They can cross the room. And then the professor asks them to share. And here comes the gamification piece. So the more they share, the more points they get. So all of their names, first and last, which I think is another important thing, because really important that people pronounce your name correctly. And so it's a kind of a prompt for professors who have people from all over the world. Their names up and spelled correctly, if not phonetically pronounced, they still might have to ask, how do you pronounce your name? But the fact that they have them up there and they can call on people with their name is really important. But it's it's a roster that tallies up the points that they get for participating. And of course, the whole course then has these pop-up opportunities to participate and get points. They compete. In kind of a fun way, it allows professors to, this is what Dr. Bob told me, sometimes it's three or four extroverted students who dominate the class discussion. And so he was saying with Ask Class, people are looking at the tallies going up as they participate. And all of a sudden, everyone's, everyone wants in, even the, the, the more shyer students. Oh, I, the other thing is, is there is a random selector. So not only will you get points, which motivates you to speak up, but oftentimes your name will just pop up on the screen. So that's basically what it does. The students that are using it love it. They love it. And they, there was five that I spoke to and they just said, it has helped so much. One of them has met his girlfriend through the Ask Class app. And another talked a lot about sense of belonging. Another talked about the fact that it changed the dynamic between professor and student. And she said, I'm tired of just sitting there and absorbing information and just racking my brain to make it stay. And nobody's really asking me anything. And so there's just a lot of different nuance to this that I thought was really cool. Again, may not be for everyone. It's new. There's not a whole lot of evidence behind it, although uh, Moon does really tout some stats about people saying they participate more in class, they make friends, etc. And it's all in the article. But yeah, I thought that was it was really interesting. And once again, it's a good example of what we're trying to do with learning well. I mean, I, I heard about it and I just thought, I don't know, this sounds like something other people should hear about.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's super interesting and it's attempting to get at, like you said, this enduring issue post COVID or since COVID, which is this lack of student engagement. I have to say my heart rate did jump a little bit when you said your name would just be projected onto the screen. (laughs) I think I had flashbacks to my time in college, but I think it's a really great tool. And I do love that a student found his girlfriend through it. That That must be uh, a great story to share. Definitely.
0: Well, and there's another one that I love. So the other thing about these students, because I can go on about them, each of them when I talk to, they, they all happen to be from different backgrounds. One was Asian American, another was from East Africa. Diamond, who is getting a master's in transportation policy. He said, ask class is like your best friend starting the conversation for you in a group of kids you don't know. And I thought to myself, "Yeah, I get that. You know what I mean? We always have that guy, that person who's like your wingman or your crotch." Or- <laughs> so <laughs> that's what I thought was going to say, bounce. wingman. Yeah, no, I know. I've had many myself, when mostly wing women. But the and the other thing, just to say, my I was so impressed by the students and some of these sort of side insights you get, Dana. Y- yes, they talked about the product, and, and I got a lot of great stuff for, for the interview. But I was really impressed by all of the stuff that was going on in their lives. And it made me think too, part of why maybe people aren't focusing on social interaction or making friends the way I certainly remember I did in college is they're so busy. They're so busy and they're ambitious and driven. And they've got so much going on in a good way, like a really great way. But it does make me think, huh, these are not people who are chilling just hanging out. They are doing a lot of stuff. Anyway, that's just a side
1: observation. Yeah. It will be a different group of students graduating the pandemic. The pandemic students will be a different cohort, and it'll be interesting to see how that goes and where they go. Yeah. Yeah. Couldn't agree more. Circling back, and I just want to round out this conversation, Molly Ames wrote a story on Bucknell. Could you just quickly summarize what she was doing there?
0: Awesome. That was so... Great. We went together, Molly and I. Molly is a super reporter. She is not that long out of college herself. She was a writer for the Harvard Crimson when she was there. And she was the perfect person to do this story. So it's about a senior seminar at Bucknell called Bucknell on Purpose. And what it does, first of all, they it gives free food, usually like Chinese or Indian or something really good. So the students love that. It starts with a cool kind of game, or I guess you could call it an icebreaker. And then they get into a lot of philosophical questions, all geared towards, have you thought about what you're going to do after graduation as it relates to you as a person? So we're not really here to talk about how all of the engineering courses will lead to the five-year degree that you're going to get that will then bring you into your PhD program. This is about what did you want to be when you grew up? Is that something that resonates at all with where with the path that you're on? What kinds of traits do you most want to emulate and what kinds of professions might allow you to do that? So a lot of questions that really talk about purpose and and the funny thing is purpose is a big word and not everybody understands what it means, including myself. I think through this program, you really get a better sense of what it is. It's an alignment with what you do in the world to who you are as a person. And I think even asking that question really was a, a very energizing experience for these students. They too really reported to Molly how much they appreciated being asked these questions. Thinking about those answers now, they were getting ready to leave college, and it's funny. A lot of them said, "I wish that people had asked me this when I was coming in, or when I was in my first or second year." But a lot of really good information there.
1: Great, I love that article too. I'm so excited about this lineup. Yes, and Dana,
0: I'm thinking there's a couple of others here that we should talk about that that you wrote and took the lead on. One of them was information that came out. I think it was early summer, but it's super important in terms of this idea that in some ways the pandemic is over and everyone acknowledges that there's a lingering mental health impact to that. But talk a little bit about Jeffrey Arnett's work. First of all, I think a lot of people in our audience probably know who Dr. Arnett is, but you can remind them. And what that sort of odd paradox is about the quote-unquote recovery from the pandemic.
1: Sure. So Jeffrey Arnett is a psychologist who really coined this term of emerging adults, this idea of young people in their 20s, they're in this space between adolescence and young adulthood, and they don't have the characteristics of either, and there's their own unique body. So 20 years ago, he coined that term, and it's just proliferated, and it's become a well-known term. And he was approached by the Ruderman Family Foundation about writing this paper, about sort of the enduring effects of COVID on the mental well being of this group of people, of emerging adults. And by the way, he did a quadcast. So I hope people listen to that because it was very informative when I was reading this report and listening to that quadcast. He has so many insights that he pulled out of the research. He went into data from the U.S. Bureau of the Census, the National Opinion Research Center, the Pew Research Center, and he pulled out all of these longitudinal studies to find really that. Emerging adults are the most heavily impacted group in terms of their mental well-being. And that's a little bit counterintuitive because they are also the group that is basically physically the safest from the effects of COVID. And he said that was a little bit surprising, but obviously there's a couple of reasons for that. The outsized influence the pandemic had on this group. They aren't able to go out. They aren't able to meet friends romantic relationships, all of these things that happen as you're an emerging adult really were disrupted for that group. But he also pointed out in this research that the mental health of this group, even in January of this year, early 2023, those rates of anxiety and depression really have uh, remained quite high for this group. For all groups, it has remained quite high, but focusing on emerging adults, it has remained quite high. And he doesn't really have an answer for why that is. And so he suggests a lot more research into that. Obviously, we're seeing COVID tick up a little bit going into the fall, but it is still very safe for emerging adults, that population that we're looking at. And not only is it quite safe but really their our lives have returned to normal people are back at work people are back at school but they have not had that return to baseline in terms of their mental well-being he also talks a little bit about the outsized influence on women and asian americans in the report so the report is great and the quadcast is great so that was one article that i wrote for this for this issue the other piece i will just outline quickly i had an amazing conversation with Dr. Marcus Hodling, who's the director of the AUCCCD. He is so great. And we talked a little bit about the new report from AUCCCD called Navigating a Path Forward for Mental Health Services in Higher Education. Really, it talks about how we're at this point of really high mental health service utilization for students. At the same time, we're seeing increased burnout and dissatisfaction among counselors, leading a lot of them to leave the profession or at least leave counts in college settings. Um, Many are going to private practice. They're going into telehealth because the work on college campuses has changed. Um, Their caseloads have gone way up over the past 10, 15 years. There's just more students and the same amount of staff. They talk about what can be done. And really the purpose of the paper overall was just to talk about making a plan that college counseling professionals need to sit down with the administrators. They need to sit down with presidents and say, what are you trying to do? And let's make a plan based on that, because what we're doing isn't working. We need to align our goals and we need to align our messaging and make sure we're all on the same page. And that's being communicated to students. And we don't have one one part of the college saying you get 12 free sessions, and the other part of the college saying no, you can't. So it's definitely a really worth a read. There are some really interesting insights in the paper itself. There's one analogy. I'm not sure that this made it into our interview, but the paper says that colleges are making decisions about their service delivery model based on meeting the volume of demand rather than taking an outcomes-based approach and they compare it to a cancer center c- treating cancer patients and making decisions about how they treated them based on how many people were walking in the door and not what is scientifically proven to help cancer. So it just thinking about it in that way really changes your perspective about what are we doing on college campuses with the service delivery.
0: Yeah, I would agree, Dana. I thought that report was super instructive, but I also thought that the Q&A you did was really beneficial, and I'm gonna put in a little pitch here for what we're trying to do at Learning Well. Reports come out frequently, and I think the higher ed press does a good job unpacking them and talking to people about what this means. But we have to do more of that. And one of the things that we're really trying to do at Learning Well is to talk to the people who are the ones who were motivated to put out this research. And if you didn't even read the report, which I hope you did, the Q&A from one of the authors just
1: really gives you a lot of insight. Definitely, couldn't agree more. So the new issue of Learning Well Magazine is out on September 5th. Tuesday. We will be coming out with new issues at the beginning of every month, trying to send them out on a Tuesday. And we hope you all subscribe to Learning Well. You can access it through MCIs website. You can also go to learningwellmag.org. There you can sign up for the newsletter so that you get it delivered to your inbox every month and you don't have to come looking for it whenever you think about it. And it just arrives at your doorstep. So I hope everybody gets the chance to check it out this month, check out the content from last month, because it is all still relevant and super interesting. And thanks, Marge, for joining me today to talk through some of these articles. Thank you so much, Dana. Bye-bye. This has been the Quadcast, a program of the Mary Christie Institute. To learn more about our work, go to marychristyinstitute.org, where you can sign up for the MC feed, our weekly news roundup, and Learning Well Magazine, a publication at the intersection of higher education and lifelong well-being. And if you like what we're doing, leave us a rating or review on your favorite podcast player. Thanks so much for listening.